The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey. Joining me today is Mike Williams. Hello, hello. How are you folks doing today? Welcome aboard, Mike. Congratulations, you sold your soul. Uh, there's no one going back. It's all over. I mean, technically, if you're talking about RPGs, I already sold my soul. It's just you sold your soul more, so anytime an RPG comes in, you get it first. Well, this week, um, I have you on board today, Mike, because we're going to be talking a little bit about Dark Souls 2 Scholar of the First Sin, which uh, recently was released on, I believe, the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 and PC, unlike Bloodborne, which is a PS4 exclusive. And a little later, I will be... Inter- conducting an interview about the recently announced Path of Exile Awakening expansion for the action RPG that uh, is kind of the, I would suppose, the free-to-play indie alternative to Diablo. But first, let's get started with Dark Souls 2. Mike, you are like a fresh face. You're like, you're new to this whole Dark Souls thing. You're not like Bob, who apparently has played like an insane amount of this series um, has beaten pretty much all of the games. Like, you're brand new, so I, I really want your perspective on it. Uh, what do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I, I am brand new because uh, it's not, uh, how should I say, I'm not into uh, self-flagellation or sado, <laughs> uh, uh, auto-sadomasochism. Auto-sadomasochism? Yeah. It could be like sadomasochistic. You're not sadomasochistic. <laughs> yes. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, I like difficulty, but there's definitely, like, a limit. Uh, so I have, I've, which is really odd, because I, I purchased Demon Souls, uh, got apparently farther in it than I thought, because when I was explaining to someone, they were like, oh, well, that's, like, actually decently far into it. How far um, did you get? Um, there's a boss called Tower Knight. Okay. And yeah, I just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, and I, and, and I, I just stopped, not because I got tired of the game, but because there were other games ahead of it. Um, mm-hmm. I bought Dark Souls 1 for PC, um, played that for a hot second, and then I bought Dark Souls 2 and actually never loaded that up, um, mm. before the, the Scholar of the First Sin HD remaster came out. Okay. So, like when we were we were talking about uh, review assignments, I figured, hey, I'll, I'll step in and I'll see what this game really has to offer. Because if you have to review it, at least in my mind, you have to uh, do the best you can to really dig deep into it. So this was my, like, here's a reason to go play it. Uh, and I see why people like it. I'm not, like, a super convert. You're not going to, like, see me being, like, it's time to jump into Dark Souls 3. Uh, I probably am going to try Bloodborne because I hear it's a little bit faster, which has always been one of my problems with uh, the Souls series of games. They have very slow, methodical gameplay, which is a design decision. It's just not necessarily the one I enjoy the most. Um, 
but like I said in my review, um, the difficulty uh, is is part of what makes uh, a lot of people really love the game. Uh, you feel like you're overcoming something. Like when you finally finish a boss, you know that it's because you got good enough. Or as they say, get good. Um, but So you had, I feel like, the quintessential Dark Souls experience. Okay, so... You're, you're describing this in your review. You're playing Dark Souls 2, and you run into the Cyclops, right? And you, <laughs> as you were saying in your review, you kept trying to kill the Cyclops, but you couldn't. It was actually something that you really didn't need to fight, or you shouldn't have been fighting for quite a while. It was just kind of there. Oh, what was what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so there's there's this 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 Cyclops thing. So you 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 start the game, you're in this, I guess I don't know what you call it, like a ziggurat or something. You go talk to some crazy old ladies in this tree hut fort thing, <laughs> and then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to leave out of the back of that tree fort, and that takes you to the next area, but. I went back out the tree hut. I was like, okay, I'll go see what's to see. I'm sure that I'll find the path forward, whatever. So I go out to, I think it's like the right, and there's this Cyclops thing. And I'm just like, okay, Cyclops, there we go, combat. That's what this game is about. This thing's probably hard, so it's probably blocking my way. I go fight it, dead. Like dead immediately, just like dead, dead. Like, I mean, I got I got a couple dodges in before I just, like, it hit me. And, like, it hit you, like, like twice. And that's it. And, or, or sometimes, occasionally in some of the deaths, it will pick you up and eat you. Um, but I, I, I ran up against that guy for a good, a good 45 minutes to an hour. You know, just assuming... And this is, I guess, part of the the problem with the expectations. Um, I assumed that this was part of the the mythic difficulty of Dark Souls, so it never occurred to me that this was just something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's the thing with Dark Souls. Okay, so it really confounds expectations, right? You go in and you're thinking. All right, well, I've been walking along, and there's this guy who's apparently blocking the way that I'm supposed to be going. Should I be fighting him? Um, and often the answer is no, um, or sometimes the answer is no. Um, a good example I can think of is, do you remember the Red-Eyed Knight in Demon Souls? I do, I do. Yep. Yeah, it's like, there is the Red-Eyed Knight... Uh, and that was kind of the like the signal of danger, right? Don't don't go after this guy. He's probably going to kick your ass. And in fact, there were there are usually like blood signals or on the on the ground, right, where people are leaving messages. Um, and another uh, another way that they tell you to not go to a certain place is that you'll find like just a ridiculous number of blood stains. And then you get to watch other players hilariously die trying to fight this creature. Um, so those are like all hints, but you know, Dark Souls 2 and Dark Souls and Demon Souls, like they're these games that are kind of like, eh, 
figure it out, figure out your own way. And, you know, obviously that's something that people, a lot of people really enjoy because it's so counter to what has become established as like what you need in games. But I know that there are other people who find that kind of alienating. It sounds like you're sort of in the middle. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of. Uh, so, and, and the thing is, is the bloodstains and the little notes do appear later. But once you've gotten a little bit farther into the actual, like, this is where you're supposed to go area. So it was just like, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to fight this thing and, and, and die. And then after a certain point, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not doing this right. This seems like they're throwing me, like, super into the deep end. Uh, so then I finally, like, kept wandering around and I found, oh, hey, I'm here at the bonfire. Let's go this other way and yay and we're good and um i don't know when i was younger i was probably closer to that dark souls mold but um my thing is i i my time is limited so it's not that i think dark souls is bad or games that are that difficult are bad it's just I'm going to get more enjoyment out of something else in that same period of time. Like, I could throw 30 hours into Dark Souls 2 and get halfway through it, or I could throw 30 hours into two other different games. Like, I beat Titan Souls in, I think, five or six hours? Mm-hmm. So, uh... Yeah, it, it's never been like a, like, I just hate those games. It's just, like, I've never had the time to just, like, sit there and throw that much time into a single game. Um, I mean, Pillars of Eternity, I, I backed that, and I barely, barely scratched the surface on that. Oh, Mike, you gotta that. play Pillars of Eternity. That game is really good. Yeah, I, I I mean I want to. It's just it's it's a matter of time. Do you think uh, is this an issue facing RPGs in general? Like how uh, how long do you think that the ideal RPG should be? Um, I don't know. A good thirty thirty hours is is mm-hmm. solid solid enough to tell a story, and then you you throw some side quests on there, and, and I think you're you're pretty much a okay. Like. Uh, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition came out a lucky time in that once review season was over, I was able to throw a lot more time into that. Uh, but even then, I haven't, like, I beat it, but I haven't done all of the dragons. Uh, you know, like, I haven't gotten completely into all of the side quests as some people have. Oh, I haven't either. Um, and to be honest, I... There are some side quests that are worth doing in that game, like um, fighting the dragons, for example. But uh, um, a lot of them are fetch quest driven, um, and I just have absolutely no patience whatsoever for going out and just collecting garbage <laughs> or finding the thing, finding five of the thing and bringing it back to a person. Um, so I mostly... And also, I was under the gun for the reviews, so I mostly stuck to critical pathing my way through the quest. 
speaking of which, how did you like Dragon Age Inquisition? Because that one's a little bit, um, uh, not controversial, but it has people who like really enjoy it and consider it the best RPG of the year from last year, which I'm kind of in that camp. Um, and then there are people who just became bored with it and gave up on it and just couldn't get into it. Like Bob is definitely in that camp. Where do you stand on Inquisition? Uh, I liked Inquisition, but the thing I I like about Bioware games is less the gameplay and more the characters. Mm-hmm. So I'll power through, um, I'd say games that I probably wouldn't enjoy. Like Mass Effect 3, gameplay-wise, if you just had that game by itself, I'm not sure I would have played it or enjoyed it as much. Not to say it was bad, it just wasn't something that I would play if I didn't care about the characters at all. Um, which I guess is something that happens in some RPGs. I had the same uh, issue in Dragon Age 2. Yes, 2. I like Origins combat more than I like the others. But in Dragon Age 2, it was it was very much... I was just getting through the combat to get to the next part of the story because I thought the characters were interesting. What kind of RPG, like, what do you look for in an RPG exactly? Um, I'm definitely more of the uh, uh, slower, um, give me time to think, pause uh, style player. Although, uh, probably my favorite RPG combat system is either Grandia or Grandia 2. Oh, really? Why is that? Um... I just really like the the movement around the uh, around the battlefield, the area effect, uh, how positioning actually mattered to a point, um, and uh, I'm trying to forget figure out what the the system was called, like the term that they actually used, um, whatever the the line of movement where you could attack enemies and push them back so that uh, they wouldn't move immediately, or you could uh, hit them in the middle of charging a special attack and, and break it. Um, that, was just, that was a nice, fun system. Um, yeah, I really... Yeah, I'm a big fan of Grandia 2's battle system uh, for a lot of the reasons that you describe. Um, it... It's a nice hybrid of kind of turn-based and real-time elements. So it's tense, but it doesn't feel kind of unfair or overwhelming like the active time battle system in Final Fantasy can at times. Yeah. Um, and it does still give you time to like pause and think um, when your char- when it comes time for your character to move. Like you're not under the gun, like frantically scrolling your way through menus and everything. Um, and I'm speaking as a person who often has the, 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 the don't pause on for active time battle because I kind of like the intensity that it brings, but it can be a little annoying to scroll through my freaking menu while the bad guy is like preparing to launch a super, uh, like a flare attack or an Ultima or something. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll pause, um. I think Dragon Age Inquisition was a step back combat-wise in the right direction. Um, a step back combat-wise in the right direction. Like, uh, Origins was more of the Baldur's Gate style of combat. Okay. 
yeah. then Dragon Age 2 was definitely more action RPG oriented. Um, and Inquisition sort of splits the difference between the two. Um, the problem with Inquisition is, uh, even though you could pause and send X character here or have X character do that, the, the choices never really felt meaningful, like it wasn't difficult enough that it mattered. Uh, so, sure. so it was kind of like the mechanics were there, but there was really no reason for you to use them. Um, not at the, not at the regular level, difficult to, difficulty levels no um i mean they're like side quests where it would test you out but you know people rag on dragon age 2's um combat a lot but uh mainly because it's different from dragon age inquisition i never had that much problem with the combat it was fine it was quite a bit simpler than dragon dragon age origins they were definitely trying to go for more of a kinetic mass effect type feel my main issue with dragon age 2 was the fact that it was unfinished (laughs) um it just ends basically with act 3 like act 3 is so compressed and almost borderline nonsensical that i it, it just doesn't work so and of course there's the fact that they're reusing lots of dungeons and all that stuff so Dragon Age Inquisition felt a great deal more fleshed out, despite the fact that the combat ultimately wasn't all that different. You know, the cu- the customization wasn't ultimately all that different from Dragon Age 2. And it probably didn't help that I used the Night Enchanter as my uh, build for the first gameplay. Okay. Okay. You know, I don't remember the Night Enchanter. Could you, like, refresh my memory on that one? Uh, that's the Inquisition version of uh, the... I forget what it was called in the Origins, like the Mage Warrior or something like that. Okay, like, and this was Dragon Age 2? Um, no, I think it was in 1. Okay. In Dragon Age Origins, um, yeah, I remember you could be like, uh, you could be a knight who could use like magic and that kind of thing, but it was kind of a difficult path to go down. It was a difficult path to go down until you got there. Uh, once you got there, you were basically a a walking, monstrous tank powered by magic, and Night Enchanter and Inquisition is the same way. Um, once okay. you got that, the specific uh, combination of spells and whatnot made it so that your party really wasn't needed, because <laughs> you were the tank and the damage dealer all in one, and you could survive pretty much anything as long as you had the mana for it. Hmm. Yeah, I went with the two-handed warrior... So I was doing most of the damage while Blackwall was my tank. And then I had, um, was her name Vivian? The, uh, the mage? Yeah, Vivian. And Vivian, the mage, and I had Sarah doing a lot of, like, archery. And the funny thing was is that I often, especially in tough battles, I would switch over to Sarah and just shoot you know, and just stand in the background and shoot and, like, do supporting stuff because the computer often ran my character better than I could in terms of making sure that I was, uh, that it, in terms of staying alive and making sure that everything was going smoothly. So I was like, oh, I better just stay out of the fray because it'll get a little confusing otherwise. Yeah, no, and, um, I'm trying to remember what my party was. It was definitely Sarah... 
Um, I think it might have been Vivian, Sarah, Vivian, and uh, Cassandra. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the the format that a lot of people went with. That's that's a problem with a four person party in a game like that. So inevitably, you're going to have one mage, and then you're and then there's you, and then there's like two other party members, and maybe you can make yourself the mage, but there always has to be a mage, always. And so that's one party slot taken, and so. And then you're like, well, I need a tank to be able to absorb blows, so that either has to be Cassandra or it has to be Blackwall. And then it's like, and then the last two slots are kind of variable, but not really, because you need somebody who can do DPS and you need somebody who can be like a utility person. Done. Yeah, and I probably would have been better with it, but I think uh, that uh, earlier in the year I had played Divinity Original Sin. Mm. Uh, which requires a bit more uh, tactical thinking when it comes to the combat. And there's more interesting combinations uh, that you can come across while you're playing. So you played Divinity Original Sin, you played Dragon Age Inquisition, neither of which are short games, but you couldn't really find the the motivation to dive deeper into Dark Souls 2. Like, it just didn't grab you. Uh, not in the same way, and I, even with the Divinity of Original Sin, which is a relatively long game, I probably didn't spend as much time with it as others uh, probably did. Was it like that feeling of bounding your head against a brick wall, or was it that the atmosphere and the and the story just weren't speaking to you? Like- uh, it's it's probably the butting the head against the the brick wall. Because as I said mm-hmm. in the review, one of the thing that that does come together for Dark Souls very well uh, is uh, there's a sense of place wherever yeah. you are. It 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 all of the levels, the design, the look, and the feel of them. It feels like it's an actual place that you can go. Uh, like you're the one there in the dungeon or on the castle ramparts or whatever, uh, experiencing those things, which is, uh, not something that I always have in every RPG. Yeah. Um, I think Dark Souls' atmosphere is, well, pretty much unparalleled, uh, in terms of the way that it makes you feel lonely, the way that it kind of instills a sense of constant paranoia and fear, the way that you'll see even just one regular enemy coming at you and you'll just like tense up because you're like, oh, I don't want to mess this up because you know that they can just come and take you out immediately, you know? Yeah, and then sometimes you screw up and you're running around. I remember <laughs> early on uh, in Scholar of the First Sin. I was walking around and there was a um, was a bunch of bodies on the ground. This was relatively early on in the forest of the Fallen Giant, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of bodies on the ground and as you walk up to them, they get up and they, they're hollow soldiers that attack you. Uh, so while I was dodging the first one, uh, I accidentally dodged into a second one, which got up, and then I was essentially running around, and I turned back, and there's probably like eight or nine of them, which is pretty much a death sentence in Dark Souls, because, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, 
positioning around the battlefield and making sure that you have a place to dodge and defend from is key. So. What do you, uh, so I haven't had a chance to play Scholar of the First Sin yet. How does it look on the PS4? Or you were playing on Xbox One, right? Uh, no, uh, Bob got the Xbox One copy uh, for the review. I played the PS4 one. All right, what did you think of the... How, how did it look? Uh, it looked good. Uh, it's a very pretty game, running at 60 frames per second. Apparently, uh, and again, this is another issue with expectations, um, the higher frame rates, uh, your weapon durability is tied to frame rate. So the higher frame rates means your weapons break much faster, uh, which again was another thing that like a veteran player would be like, oh, hey, that's that's a bug, that's a problem. For me, I just thought it was part of the game's difficulty. Mm-hmm. That all of my weapons were breaking in like 10 to 15 hits. That's the funny thing about Dark Souls. You never know... You you kind of have to feel your way through it, as it were. Like, the game will never really give you a hint as to what is supposed to be happening. And the reason is that there's often not an answer to that. But yeah, the series is kind of notorious for bugs. Yes, I mean, this is the one I didn't, didn't particularly find out about, and I apparently didn't mess with Bob at all, because... Uh, He's just a veteran and, you know, probably attacks things and kills them in one hit in the right spot, like hitting him in their shin or something like that. <laughs> For me, like, you know, I'd have a sword and I'd be like, oh, this is a nice, oh, goodbye sword. And I just assumed that that was the way the game played. Because were again, you playing it before the servers were turned on? Um, I, no. Because I had the notes in the bloodstains. Okay. Um, although, like, while I was playing them, uh, I think on my, like, second night, the servers were off. Uh, which doesn't help you from a gameplay perspective, but definitely helps you from, uh, I guess, a storytelling, a narrative perspective, because it makes you actually feel a little bit more tied to that world. Uh, whereas... With the servers on, you ca- I'll occasionally see the ghosts as like, oh, hey, that guy just stumbled up the- and he died. Okay, there there must be something there. <laughs> you know, I reviewed the original Dark Souls for when I was at GamePro, and I probably mentioned this um, on the last podcast when we were talking about Bloodborne. And I was playing it well before the servers were turned on, and it was one of the most stressful experiences of my life and i feel like the optimal way to play it is you just go through it at your own pace if you run into something that you can't beat then you turn around and you go somewhere else which is what i kind of learned how to do in dark souls um there are places like there are there was a uh, i forget what there was a minotaur that had like an axe i forget what his name is um, with two wolves, and that, that part of the game was just kicking my butt. So I turned around, and I went to a totally different area. I just kept wandering around, kept exploring. Um, I fought a giant butterfly, 
or it was something it was like a flying creature on uh the ramparts god it's been like four years now i can't believe how long it's been since i last played this game so i can't remember the name of any of the enemies um but i actually killed that one relatively easily which is funny because everybody later said how hard it was but anyway so that's one part of playing it in kind of the optimal way i feel like is just not butting your head against it like the game always almost always gives you options in terms of where it's good where you can go and the other thing is what i would do is i would find an enemy like i would find a boss and then i would i would try to fight it a few times right and then once i kind of got a feel for its uh for its patterns and what it was doing i would revive to human uh, get all of my health bar back. And then I would go and summon, um, usually an AI companion, uh, to help me out. Or, if I could, I would summon in people. I couldn't do that during the review. I ended up relying pretty heavily on AI companions in Dark Souls, uh, the original. Yeah, so, see, Bob said the same thing. He was like, you know, if you're the easier way to do it, is when you're tackling an area, uh, jump into somebody's, somebody else's game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe he said, basically, when you die, it's not like, it doesn't penalize you as much as dying in your own game. But I thought that was unfair for me to try for my first real stab at it. Why, why unfair? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I was trying to do it like it's supposed to be done. Is there a way, is, is there like a supposed to be done kind of approach to a game? Uh, maybe. I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I was basically going into it, um, with the assumption that, uh, let's say I was the only person in the world playing it. Uh, like I was the first person to ever touch Dark Souls 2, Skala of the First Sin. So I didn't use any guides. I didn't, um, ask anyone about any of the extra mechanics. Uh, I just played it straight. Sure. And uh, so you were, I don't know. Um, I sort of feel like in this day and age, there are so many resources, uh, that, like, you're just going to partake of them regardless, right? I mean, I I guess you could play without them, but you're almost shortchanging yourself in some ways, I feel like. Which is probably true. Um, and, 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 and like I said in the review, I, I, I liken it to a language. Because people who have played Souls games just jump right in. They're like, oh, hey, well... There's this, and here's holification, and here's how to get around that, and jumping into other people's worlds, and yada yada. And the game itself doesn't really explain much of that. Like, you know what's funny? Uh, the exact. I mean, that's the case for all for all games, right? Um, pretty much every like hardcore game speaks its own language. Um, when you were saying that, I thought of my experience learning how to play Madden, where you would look up a strategy and it would go, and the strategy wouldn't be like, 
call this play for optimal results. No, the strategy would be like, break out this really killer blitz. So here's what you do. You're going to pinch the line, and then you're going to crash it down, and then you're going to base the line, and then you're going to uh, drop your drop this guy back into a hook zone, and this guy into, and then you're going to re-blitz this guy, and then you're going to shift everything to the right. And then you should be able to get a guy in untouched to the quarterback. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> Let's go back to the bit where I'm crashing down and the re-blitz and the who? And it took me forever to learn like everything that people are talking about. But it's like, it feels like this is the case in a lot of games. So maybe Dark Souls isn't the only case of that, you know? Yeah, and that's, I guess, I can see why people like it, but again, it, it's not necessarily something that I've played it and I'm like, yeah, this is this is the jam. And I've actually seen a lot mm. of people who are big uh, Dark Souls fans after playing Bloodborne uh, are having issues moving backwards. Like going back to Dark Souls? Yes. Oh, because it's slower. Yeah. This is this mm. is this is what I've heard from some people. It just feels like a slower game. Uh, whereas Bloodborne is a faster, more offensive game. As someone like, I wasn't necessarily interested in Bloodborne because again, I hadn't played, uh, Scholar of the First Sin, but someone was like, oh hey, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like Dark Souls plus Ninja Gaiden, and that's when I perked up. I was like, oh, okay, mm. now, now, now a fast action game, like, I'll, I'll burn through some Devil May Cry or Bayonetta, but, um, yeah, no, the slower games is, is less my, Less my speed, though I know why they did that. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I'm totally the opposite. I, I mean, Twitch combat is fun. Like I certainly like games like Bayonetta and and Ninja Gaiden and that kind of thing. But I, I like how deliberate Dark Souls is. I like going, like making my way through slowly through an area that is really well lit. And, and when I say well lit, I mean like. It's lit in such a way that it maximizes the fear and the tension and the creepiness with my sword up or with my shield up and my sword up. And I'm, and I know that any moment, like some like horror from the abyss can pounce on me. And then the next thing I know, like this guy with a giant sword is like crashing down onto my shield. I'm being thrown back into a wall. I'm like kind of dodging around. There's no music or anything. It's just two of us engaged in this like battle to the death and either like he nails me and I drop dead and I'm like, ah, and I'm gone. Or I manage to get the parry in and like stab him and take him out. And then I like take this big, deep breath of relief. I'm like, ah, oh, thank God. Okay. Keep moving. Oh God, I'm dead <laughs> because I don't know. I fell off a cliff or something. Um, which is not to say that Bloodborne's approach is like invalid or I don't like it it's just I I feel like the thing that originally set Dark Souls apart from other action games is not just the atmosphere and not just the fact that it does things its own way but the fact that it was both slow paced and really considered but also it felt kinetic it felt interesting it felt impactful it, I, it felt like all of these other buzzwords meaningless buzzwords that I'm throwing in right now um, when that, when you got hit, you felt like, you personally felt like you were being thrown back. It felt immersive and visceral. It felt immersive. 
I can't think of any other useless game journalism buzzwords that I can throw in there, but but yeah, I, I don't know. I got Bloodborne. It's sitting on my shelf. I need to play it, but I don't think I'm going to get to it for a bit because I'm completely hooked on MLB The Show right now, which makes me a bad RPG podcast host, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm that way, too. I have um, Hyrule Warriors uh, sitting next to the Wii U. Wait, 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 wait. Hyrule Warriors? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and no, I have it sitting next to the Wii. That will be my first, um, my first um, Musou game. Wow. Um, you know, I've heard good things about Dragon Quest, uh, Dragon Quest, uh, Heroes? Heroes? Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they said that they had imported it, and that they said, quote, Hyrule Warriors felt too muso, but Dragon Quest Heroes felt more Dragon Quest than they expected, and they were very happy with it, so... Uh, I mean, we're both Gundam fans, Mike. I couldn't get into Dynasty Warriors Gundam, and if I can't get into... If Gundam can't sell me on Dynasty Warriors, then I don't know if anything can. Yeah, I mean... Mm, well... Well, hmm. There's a, uh, a Kamen Rider game. I'm also into Kamen Rider. Uh, Kamen yeah. Rider Batride War, which I've played, and that's a lot of fun. So I think I might like parts of Musou games. I just... Haven't really like sat down and like really dug into it, where I'm the one playing. And like I said, Hyrule Warriors, like I'm, I, I have it here. It is unopened, and one day I will open it up. It's just, uh, again, like like Dark Souls. There were just other games in front of it. Um, that's not necessarily a hit against them. The 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 game that I'm skipping, but more of a there's just so much out there to play, um, especially now with the the uh, Kickstarter bringing back some of these older style RPGs. Because like, at the rate I'm going, I will will probably play Witcher three before I play Pillars of Eternity, and then at some point Tides of Numenera will come out, and I will. Won't be able to play that because I will have not gotten to Pillars of Eternity. So yeah, I got Witcher three coming out uh, coming up next week, next month too. So I've got that tiny window where I can enjoy some games before uh, it's right back to the grind of playing more video games. Yeah. See, so what are you what are you what are you going to play in that in that tiny window? You know. I really should break out Bloodborne. I uh I I have it. It's, I I I really want to play it, but but I also have Axiom Verge. So Oh, yeah, so see. That's that's on my mind too and Jeremy spoke very highly of it. Yeah, I bought Axiom Verge. It's I I played 25 minutes of it and then I had mm-hmm. to go play other stuff. The curse of the game journalist got to go play other stuff. Yep. No, I, I wrapped up Xenoblade Chronicles and I wrapped up Pillars of Eternity. And yes, dear listener, yes, we're going to be talking about Xenoblade Chronicles. We couldn't do it this week because Jeremy's unavailable. I apologize. But uh, I don't know. Like every time I sit down to play my PS4 lately, I just end up playing MLB The Show. So, so it could be that all of my time gets sucked up once again. And oh yeah, and the new Super Robot Wars came out. 
So I got that on my PS3, so I also have that to play. But I don't know. I feel like I should be prioritizing Bloodborne because by all accounts, it's an outstanding game. So I it is time that I go. But, but uh, sorry, uh, Mike, it doesn't sound like you're going back to Dark Souls 2 anytime soon. Uh, anytime soon? No, probably not. Um, what was the last thing I played? Hmm. On a whim, oh, well, Titan Souls. I reviewed Titan Souls, so that was the last thing I played. But on a whim, otherwise, I played uh, GTA V while I was binging on Daredevil and um, K-Drama. Oh, you're watching Daredevil. Yes, I am. Yes, of course I am. Do you like it? Yes, it's great. Marvel Strikes Again. What do you like about it? Uh, I like its tone, even though uh, uh, part of it somewhat falls apart in that it tries to be a little bit too gritty, uh, mm-hmm. but it works very well. It's it's a it's a good show, and I'm surprised it worked as as well as it did. Uh, and it makes me look forward to the subsequent uh, Marvel Netflix shows that will be coming out over the next like two years. Hmm. So, um, yeah, no, I, I was playing GTA V as my, it's the game that I don't need to pay attention to, that I can just run around in and do absolutely nothing without paying attention to what I'm doing, because if I die, whatever, I've already beat the game. I've already beat the game twice. So. Yeah, I can't, I can't bring myself to care about GTA <laughs> anymore. Uh, I tried to care about GTA 5 when it came out on the 360, and it just did not reach me. Well, Dark, Dark Souls 2 Scholar of the First Sin is available now on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Um, Mike seemed pretty lukewarm on it, but Bob seemed to be really into it. Um, I feel like it's probably the definitive version of Dark Souls 2 at this point. Um, it includes all of the DLC. Uh, it is definitely... One of the, it's definitely a lot nicer than the original releases on the Xbox 360 and the PS, PS3. I can't speak for the PC version, but you should try it for yourself and see how you think. I'm sitting here with Jonathan Rogers from Grinding Gear Games, who's the technical director on Paths of Exile. They're getting ready to release a brand new expansion pack called Awakening. And God, you got a ridiculous amount of new content coming up. But uh, first, let's talk really quickly about the game itself. So Path of Exile came out in 2013 was kind of seen as the true sequel of Diablo 2 at a time when Diablo 3 was really not going so well. So can you just give us a really brief overview of the development history of Path of Exile? Yeah, so um, basically our company started in 2006. Um, at that time, um, you know, Diablo 3 was a long way off, so it wasn't really on our, you know, in our thinking. Um, but we were basically a group of three initially, um, huge action RPG fans, um, you know, like Chris and Eric, for example, our, um, our director is Eric. He, they met in Diablo, right? Like they, they met playing online. And um, I've known Chris, um, you know, since I was in high school. So basically, you know, we're sort of three friends. We came together. Um, we decided to make the action RPG we really wanted. And um, Path of Exile was the result. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's crazy because I've heard so many people say, well, you know, action RPGs are not really RPGs because they're clicking, they're, there's not a lot of depth to them, but your game kind of is designed to give lie to that notion, right? Yeah, so character customization was the very center um, of, of our thinking. And I think, you know, part of the reason is, it's actually funny because so free-to-play is often looked at as this big sort of, like, um, thing which can be negative. But one of the big positives of free-to-play is that when you're making a free-to-play game, the key thing you're thinking about is how can I keep players engaged for the longest amount of time possible. And so what we thought was, okay, we need a character customization system which will keep people, um, you know, wanting to make characters for as long as possible. So the skill tree and, like, the skill gem system, all of these things that allow for such large customization, they were really born out of the thinking of, you know, how can we make, you know, keep people engaged um, for, you know, hopefully forever. <laughs> but free-to-play is evil, man. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, we sort of felt the same thing. when I mean, when we started, we were looking at Asia and so on, and they had a lot of, like, pay-to-win and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, our game only has cosmetic items. Um, that was a, a philosophy from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, we can give lie to that concept of free-to-play being evil, right? You know, um, some, you can do it correctly, and you can make money um, by, uh, you know, by doing things right. I really got to know, what was your class in Diablo 2? Um, well, I played all the classes. But I tell you, I, I, even though it was probably underpowered, I still had uh, feelings for the, uh, um, for, the, for the Zon, the Amazon. Um, I really like those. Um, so, you know, let's just see. <laughs> What's your opinion on the the kind of the evolution of the subgenre ever since Diablo Two? Well, so um, one of the things when we were sort of starting was we felt like nobody was doing like we had these three pillars of uh, of what we thought were important. One of them is um, items, right? Like all about items, like the action RPG. This is what really motivates people. Um, you know, they, they they people just have a soft spot in their heart for you know for loot for for you know finding the best things. Um, that was really big. The other one was we knew we needed to have a secure online economy. So what that basically means is that when you get an item, people know you didn't cheat it, it's valuable, um, you know, like, it, like people just react so much better once when the things that they're finding have um, sort of a, a real world value, if you will, because they know that they can trade it with someone, you know, um, that, that's a big part of it. And the other one is um, the replayability thing. So that means random level generation, that means like character customization and so on. Um, random level generation was something that was lacking in a lot of the action RPGs that came out kind of post Diablo 2, but um, you know, before some of the more modern ones. So that was another thing that we really wanted to make sure we had. So one of the big like elements of Path of Exile that really stands out. You, we, you were showing me the game earlier, and you're saying that the game that you are kind of known for just having the ridiculously huge skill tree. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was actually thinking of Final Fantasy X when I was looking at it because there are all the rings and everything. Uh, tell me about like developing this this thing, this gigantic thing. Um, well, so one of the things that people don't really realize is that um, while we try to make everything like just so, we really don't know what's going to happen when the players actually get their hands on that stuff. Um, you know, like we, we do the best we can, but the players always find ways to exploit it. So we kind of have a bit of an attitude of, you know, like people feel good when they're breaking the game. Um, so we just let people do that, right? Like we, we come up with things and we hope that people find things that like totally just, you know, break the systems they do what we weren't thinking of. Um, you know, and, and so that's been that's really important. But in the expansion, we're really extending on the passive skill tree. Um, uh, in the past, the skill tree was a sort of big static map that we created. 
Um, now in the expansion, we're adding the ability to socket items into it and to actually modify the tree itself. So you can effectively create custom passives with items, but you can also, um, there, are, there are jewels that have area of effects that modify the tree itself. So you can turn, um, like, you know, strength into dexterity on the tree. You can turn, like, a, an axe damage into bow damage, for example. Um, and that's kind of the direction that we're moving with the passive tree, um, uh, and we hope that that will lead to even more crazy broken things that the community come up with. Well, what was your thinking in designing um, sort of these area of effect jewels and uh, all of these other modifications? So um, it was sort of one of those things where when we came up with it, um, like as soon as our designers heard it, like they were like, wow, that's awesome. You know, we can really come up with a huge number of ideas for this. You know, there's things like um, the ability to allocate passives you didn't, like you weren't near, and there's things like, you know, threshold gems, which are where you have to say, like, okay, once I meet this condition, then I can get this thing. So I get, like, 60 intelligence around this thing, and now I get an extra bonus. Like, basically, there were just tons of different ideas. So as soon as we sort of heard that, we were like, um, yeah, this is definitely what we're going with. Um, like, you can tell when something's a good idea when, like, your designers don't have to struggle to come up with things for it. Like, it's like you're finding, like, you know, someone comes up with this idea, and it's like there's just gold all over the ground, and you, all you have to do is pick it up. Um, so, uh, you know, that's just kind of quote Jonathan Blow there uh, on that one. Um, but yeah, we really knew that we were onto a, you know, a winning design with that one. And, and like, we'd tried to come up with all these other designs, um, you know, that were sort of crazy and, and we were struggling with them. And so as soon as we got this one, it was like, yep, this is what we're doing. What are your, some of, what are some of your favorite examples of like the new possibilities that are afforded by this skill tree? So um, one of the ones I really love is the uh, one that gives things to your minions instead of you. So basically, in an area of effect around this jewel, um, everything in there goes to your minions. And that's interesting because I just know someone will find something broken with it, right? Like, there are stats in the tree that are intended for players and not for minions. And um, I'm sure someone will find some build or some way to, you know, make a minion that... Uh, just does something unexpected and, you know, probably we'll have to nerf it in a patch someday. But um, until that point, you know, people always have fun finding interesting things. I really have to know, what is, like, the most unexpected, like, exploit or, like, game-breaking thing that somebody has done with your skill tree? Um, so probably, we had one recently, um, which, um, this is actually more to do with the skill gem system, but I, it came to mind immediately, so I'll tell you to tell you anyway. Um, basically, we had these uh, um, the skill which allow you to create like a duplicate of yourself um, uh, in order to kind of fool the enemy. And um, we decided, like some designers sort of said, oh, okay, well, we want these things to last a little while, so we're going to give it like uh, 10 times the player's life. Um, so whatever life you were on, um, we give it that life times 10 just to, you know, to, make, it, uh, to make it last a little while. And um, someone used uh, a, a thing in the skill tree called um, uh, minion instability. Um, and uh, hang on, I think it's right because all the players will crucify me if I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, they use minion instability, and um, they also use God. What was it? Um, yeah, it was Glencomera. I had that part, and the minion instability. What was the other part of the combo? Sorry, I'm drawing this up. Do you even remember, Chris? Uh, low life. Oh, yeah, it was just a low life. But okay, okay. Basically, basically, minion instability is a thing which allows your minions to explode when they die. Um, and then they built a character that was always on low life by using some mechanics to do with res- reserving parts of your pool, of your life pool. And then basically, what, because of the fact that the, the minion that you generated um, was on low life when it spawned and was also had so much life because of the fact it was supposed to be survivable, they basically had a skill where you cast it, it makes a minion that instantly explodes, dealing huge amounts of damage. 
And um, that was the sort of exploit where they were just using a bunch of different mechanics together that we hadn't expected. Um, and it allowed them to come up with this build that like was literally nuking screens. It was crazy. Like the, 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 They could kill bosses in one hit. It was just absolutely out of control. So, okay, this was never intended. Like you know, we, we have to actually nerf this. And the build still works. It just doesn't do crazy amounts of damage like it did before. Um, so, yeah, once again, we never expected that kind of thing. And yet, interestingly enough, uh, the consensus that I seem to be finding among the community is that things are actually surprisingly well balanced. So how, how is this magic? How, how have you managed to accomplish this? So we t- do a lot of community feedback stuff, right? We read Reddit, we read our forums, we go in game and we talk to our players and so on, and we do patches all the time. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we almost have to throw a lot of that away with this expansion because we're rebalancing the game from scratch, from all the way from level one, right? Uh, skills are changing levels, um, you know, we've rearranged the tree a fair amount, um, there's the whole new system of the jewels and so on. And we basically decided, look, because we're adding jewels and because we're changing so much of the game, and uh, we, we, we have the ability to change fundamental mechanics, rebalance everything. And um, currently our QA testers are saying, you know, the game is a lot smoother from level one, you're getting skills at the right times and that kind of thing. Um, but it means that we're going to have to have an extensive beta for this expansion um, in order to be able to effectively rebalance the game again because, you know, players will just find things all the time and we'll have to, you know, try to bring them at least reasonably in balance. Um, but that's the fun part, right? Like, it's very fun as a designer to see what the community comes up with. Um, you know, we've got, like, a, a series called Build of the Week that we do, um, you know, just to highlight community builds because um, we really want to reinforce that point, um, especially in the new players, that, you know, you play this game because you want to be creative. You want to come up with interesting ways to play the game that no one's ever played before. And hopefully, um, you know, like you, when you come to the game, you sort of, you know, you see something unique and you're able to come up with something literally nobody's ever thought of before. That's kind of like the, you know, what we hope players will experience when they, when they play a game. But at the same time, though, um, by the fact that in some ways you're ripping it all up and completely rebalancing everything. <laughs> It must feel a little like you're playing with fire with the community, right? Oh, absolutely. It's very scary, but um, you have to do scary things if you want to advance. And there, 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 were, there, were, there were balanced things in the past that we had that were holding us back. Um, I don't necessarily want to go into exact details right now because there's, you know, there's a lot of minutia, but basically there were lots of little decisions that don't seem important when you make them. But then in the long term, um, suddenly there become balance problems that you have to work around all the time. And so by revisiting all of those things... Um, we can make the game better in the long term and it's allowed us to add skills to the game um, in this expansion that we couldn't do before because they wouldn't have worked under old balance assumptions. So Awakening is a story-based expansion. Um, you're adding an entirely new act. Um, could you generally give an overview of that, uh, of those kinds of additions? Yeah, so um, Path of Exile was three acts before, now it's four. Um, the act is as big as any of the previous ones we've done. Um, uh, one of the things we have focused a lot more on, though, is um, really awesome boss fights. Um, the expansion has nine new boss fights, the caliber of which is as good as an act boss would have been in the previous game. So um, a lot of these people are characters who um, the players have heard about. Um, if you read all of the NPC texts, and I know not everyone does, but for people who do, they're going to meet a lot of characters that they've heard of, they've heard legends of in the past, they've found unique items that were, you know, that belong to those characters, and now they've been um, resurrected by the beast who, um, is, you know, who is awakening. Um, and uh, you'll get to fight them. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, but also we just wanted to make sure that since this, um, you know, like since the expansion will be around for a long time, you know, we wanted to really make sure that there was a lot of things that um, added to the end game. So 
Um, you know, all of these bosses, they come back in maps later on. Um, you know, like, in fact, they actually get new abilities in maps, which is something we haven't done before. Um, so the, the higher-level versions of these bosses are, have even more interesting things going on with them. But, um, yeah, as I said, it's a big focus of the expansion, um, and um, I think players will really enjoy that. Your studio has grown a lot since uh, you first released Path of Exile. And first you, since you first started, you've gone from three designers to something on the order of 53 uh, employees at your studio. Um, what kind of opportunities has this afforded you that you simply didn't have before? So basically, in the past, um, we were very limited um, to one thing we could do at a time as a studio. So uh, after we released, we basically said, okay, we want to make this giant expansion that's like got a whole new act, um, but it's going to take years, and we couldn't really not have any updates during that time. Um, so we needed to add more, pla- uh, you know, more designers in order to work on expansions that we could release in the meantime. Um, so effectively, we had to scale the studio up a, a large amount. Um, now we can effectively, you know, we can handle more things. Um, but I'll tell you, it's funny because um, when you have more designers, like as your ratio of designers to programmers goes up, you actually get some very interesting things happen where they start to reuse all the tools you made for them in interesting ways. If they're sitting there and they're thinking about, okay, how can I use all these tools? You know, you start to get really interesting effects. So the unique items that people are coming up with now, like the designers coming up with now, are just totally beyond anything that we would have thought of before. Um, and that's really exciting to see. And um, you know, you're seeing the same thing as well. Without uh, we have more level designers in the past than in the past. Like in the past, we had one level designer. Um, now we went to two, and then three level designers. Um, you know, they're able to use the existing tools that the programmers have made for them in really interesting ways. Um, so that's been really great. Can you give me some examples of like some of these really cool ideas or new perspectives? Um, well, so um, one example is in the Doreso area in Act Four. Um, we, uh, the, the designers managed to use the existing tools to create these like pit fight scenarios where um, you know you, you have a thing where a gate closes behind you and then a bunch of monsters come out and they've got different properties and so on. You know that's sort of like a one example thing that just a level designer can do with the existing systems. Um, or you know I, I saw something interesting the other day where um, they had these uh, these sort of floating eyeballs that like turn towards you and that's like something that a programmer never added. They just kind of worked out how to do it. Or um, you know just the things from a level design perspective and from a from a um, from the perspective of a, uh, of, a, of a game designer, like um, we have this unique called, um, what was it called? Um, you know, I can't remember, but uh, what it does is it effectively allows you to, um, uh, when you put items in it, um, uh, when you fire any projectiles, they come out in a Nova. Um, so that's the kind of thing where we never actually had any code for that. Like they were reusing things that were designed for monsters when they made that unique. And they were able to somehow apply them, and they came up with this idea, and they added it to the game. And then when we see it, we're like, "Wow, that's really cool!" Um, or uh, you know, there are things like um, they had some gloves which reverses knockback direction. You know, like that's the kind of thing that you can that the designers come up with. Um, or uh, another another item recently was um, a bow that we added, which um, casts all the minion gems that are socketed in it um, when you kill a monster, um, which effectively allows you to create like a, a ranger. Um, uh, summoner, which is not really something we've ever done. You know, the, a build, no, nobody player has found a good build for that before. So um, that's the kind of thing, as I said, and, and it's just designers coming up with really interesting things using the existing tools. Um, you know, uh, and, and that's always really cool to see. I look at your game and I, I feel like there's almost a pure chaos to the way the mechanics work, and yet there's almost sort of an order from chaos. It's, it's really unique. Like it's something that I haven't really seen in an RPG before. Well, the key to that really is having very consistent design and systems. So um, like we have a guy called Mark who's really in a, on our programming team. He's really into that. So basically, so long as you're consistent with how everything works and you make sure it just makes the game feel more cohesive. 
So um, we like to sort of think that like if you try something and you think it's going to work one way, it should probably actually work that way. So um, once again, it comes down to things like the ability to um, arbitrarily put like multiple projectiles on something and then now it works for every projectile in the game, including skills that the projectile isn't even the point. They just happen to have projectiles in them. You know, that kind of stuff is where you know we, we try to get that sort of consistency across the game and then hopefully that means that um, like while it's true there's tons of... Um, weird things you can do, at least when you do something, you feel like you understand what's going to happen. Um, um, so that's kind of, you know, once again, it's, it's been something that's very important. And it's sort of similar to how we see um, things like Magic the Gathering, which is a big, um, you know, they have a huge number of cards. Like, I, I don't know how many they have now, but it's, it's, it's like 15,000 cards or something like that. Um, and yet, um, the game still works in the presence of all of these things that have been the rules because they've been consistent in how they're playing. So we talked briefly about, well, we talked about how these new employees, new developers, new programmers are bringing a different perspective to the game. What about the community? What kind of perspective have they brought to it? So the community has been really important. I mean, so it's, it's funny with the community because when they give you a, a suggestion, they always come to you with a solution rather than a problem. So you have to make sure that whenever we're evaluating community feedback, we don't just do what they say, right? Because some of you, you need to multiply the life on this thing by two or whatever. And we say, okay, well, why did you say that? Is it because, you know... Uh, you, you felt like you were dying to it too easily or whatever. Like, we, we look at what they actually, you know, what the problem is that caused them to give you the solution and then try to work out our own solution to the problem. And so, um, you know, while we may not do what you say, community, we do listen to what you say to come up with our own solutions to the problems you have. And we think that that actually leads to um, some, some pretty good things. Um, yeah. It's almost like you're working backward from their original, like, from their original solution. It's like, okay, here's the answer. We're going backwards. So it's almost like Jeopardy. <laughs> maybe something like that but um, I'll tell you it's funny because the solutions that people propose like nobody ever really thinks through all the implications and so you really always need to come up with your own one like um, honestly I, I don't even know how the designers do it at this point because every time we have to change anything the number of things we have to consider just because of all these interwoven systems is so high you know like there's like probably only one guy in our company who really understands absolutely everything, right? Like, you know, there's always something, like, I, I ask the guy, the guy's um, name is Mark, and I ask him, hey, if we were to make this change, like, what effect would that have? And uh, he's going to, he's sort of goes, okay, it's going to do this, and it's going to do this, and it's going to do that thing, you know, it'll interact with this passive, and this gem, and so on, and that monster will have this thing, to, you know, uh, it's, it's very difficult to keep it all in your head, um, which means that it's pretty hard to become a designer in our company at this point, because there's so much information you need to pick up, but, um, you know, uh, it, it does happen, so you know, is that. Mark is almost the keeper of the keys for Path of Exile. Well, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I don't know what we'd do without him, honestly. <laughs> so, can you put Awakening into the context of your evolving understanding of the game and, your, and how the game has grown? Um, so, like, the Awakening is sort of, it's like, we always knew we wanted to do another act, um, but over time we've had to, like, as we've been doing the other expansions, it really has changed what we sort of, like, thought in terms of the other features that we we're going to add. Um, like, most of the time in the development, we've been making actual content, like, um, you know, like art assets and so on, right? That takes a huge amount of time, like, millions of dollars to make, um, you know, like a, a, a modern um, sort of, you know, area in a game like this. Um, but the stuff to do with like the skill tree and so on, well, that's had to sort of come very slowly over time, um, you know, because um, the metagame has shifted so much um, over the years that the game has been out. Like the um, uh, since 
the game was released, we've added a new crafting system, um, we've added new in-game bosses and so on, we've added, like, there's a concept of corruption that came out of one of the expansions, which um, allows people to modify items in ways they never could before. So, I mean, we've had to bear all that in mind. Um, but, um, you know, and then there's sort of one of those things where it's like, okay, so in, um, in one of the expansions we added, like, side areas to every area in, in, in the existing game. Now we're making it four, we're like, okay, now we have to make the side areas for these areas because the previous content still exists and it still has bearings on it, you know, so it's, it's quite, it is quite interwoven and difficult, but, um, you know, like, we've, we've hope, hopefully we've remembered everything, right? Like, you know, hopefully there isn't any area of the game we forgot to, uh, to, to, to fix, but you know, it, it's, it is all in there. So you're adding a lot of new content, you're adding the ability to manipulate the skill tree in new and really interesting ways, um, and of course you're adding a new act. Am I missing anything? Um, probably. I mean, I'm probably missing things, uh, honestly, at this point. Um, like, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's random small stuff like, you know, lots of new maps for the end game, and there's, like, new recipes and new uniques. I mean, uniques is a big part. Like, we've got, like, uh, 50 new unique, um, like, items, uh, in the traditional sense. We've got more than 20 unique, uh, jewels for the tree. Um, we have, um, um, no, I'm just thinking about a lot of things. There's tons of new quality of life improvements, like lots of UI customization, um, like item filters is one that a lot of players are looking forward to um, in terms of that. You know, just things like being able to reduce the size of the font in the chat box, right? There's lots of little features that the, um, that the community requested. Um, and um, more little changes to basic assumptions in the balance than um, you might believe. And I, I mean, I imagine one day we'll write full patch notes. Um, I don't think we're going to have full patch notes for the beta, but it's probably it would take more time than we have um, to, to write absolutely everything. But, um, you know, we, uh, one, at some point we'll have to go through absolutely everything we've changed and, you know, write it all up, so that'll be interesting. So, in the intervening couple of years, uh, Diablo 3... Uh, I hope that wasn't bad. Um, <laughs> in the intervening couple of years, Diablo 3 has also grown quite a bit, and a lot of people have come into the action RPG genre for the first time because of it. Um, what would you say to get people to try out your game who might be feeling a little intimidated by it or like, oh, Path of Exile is too hardcore, I'm just going to stay over here with Diablo 3? So while it is intimidating, like, people will open the passive skill tree and they'll go, whoa, that's so big, like, you know, that's crazy. Um, people should realize that while it's big and there's a lot of depth, it isn't necessarily complicated in the sense that you can't understand something, right? Like, everything is generally relatively easy on the face. It's The complication comes in when you're trying to combine all of those things. And, like, I would say to... When someone plays the game at first, sometimes they'll be in this mindset, which I feel is actually negative in the, in the game, in, in, in gaming, that you have to be the best player right from the word go, right? Like, you go on the internet and you're like, okay, I'm going to find the best build, I'm going to do this exact thing, right? That mindset isn't a good thing to have um, for a game like this. Like, you need to kind of learn... You know, the, be- the most fun you will have in our game is when you... Play it for the first time, and you're allocating things just because you feel like it. Right? You're like, I want this thing right now, and you know, you don't like plan to hit too much. Like that sort of stuff is very good for later on. But I would say to you, like, just try to have fun, right? Like, just play the game on face value as you see it. Like, as you get new a new item, um, you know, try it out. See if, see if you like it, right? Like, see what it does to you. And don't try to be of the mindset like, no, you know, like of the I have to be the best player. Um, you know, I have to find the best build. I'm not going to do anything unless I'm, you know, like min-maxing everything perfectly, right? Like, that, that I think, is is how you make yourself not have as much fun as if you just, you know, just play it as you see it. I can already imagine somebody going out there is going, I have to min-max it. I have to be <laughs> able to have the perfect amount of damage and output with this game or I will actually explode. But 
You can't even hit the level cap in your game. Um, well, it is possible, but very, very difficult, yes. Um, and it's one of those things where we would expect most players never to hit level 100, which is the, you know, is the level cap. And that's just because it isn't really about that. You know, like, it's about trying new builds, trying new things, like getting awesome items. That's a huge part of it. Um, and um, we also have things like races and so on. Um, like, these add um, you know, to fun because you're, like, you know, you're, you're playing competitively with other players. Um, like, it's... You know, there's kinds of lots of different things you can do at the end game, and um, hitting the level cap isn't necessarily one of them. I'm going to ask you a question that you're going to hate. You've probably gotten this like ten times today. Any thought about moving to consoles? Um, that's one of those things where I probably shouldn't comment. I mean, I, I would really like to see our game on console, um, but it's really difficult to translate. They're the interface, like just like items and stuff, manipulating items, and um, a lot of our skills just require position. Um, like when you cast a totem, you have to choose where on the screen to do that. It's not fundamentally something that translates well to a controller. So um, if we were going to consoles, we'd have to change a lot of how the game works. And so um, certainly not happening in the in the, in the near future. Um, but I would love to see it happen. You know, it's just um, yeah, it's just difficult. It's a difficult challenge. So the so the uh, the schedule, the kind of the roadmap that you have going on for Path of Exile uh, Awakening is. You're going to start a beta, you're going to go six to eight weeks, and then you're going to do a release not long after that? Yep, that's the plan. Um, so hopefully in six to eight weeks we'll be uh, coming back and talking to people about the release. Uh, but you never know, right? Like community feedback may be such that, like, you know what, we have to revisit some of these assumptions again, or maybe, um, you know, maybe there will just be other issues that lead us, or maybe it'll be faster than that. Um, personally, I'm thinking six to eight weeks should be enough. Um, we're going to let in players at a fairly decent rate um, during that time. Um, initially it'll be a fairly restricted set, um, you know, just so that we can make sure the basics are good, you know, it's not crashing or whatever. Um, and then we'll be increasing the numbers um, until the point where we have enough that we know that the end game is completely broken and everything's, everything's good again. Do you have a roadmap going ahead for Path of Exile? Because it seems like you guys are in a pretty good place when it comes to um, just the community and how people feel about it and the balance and everything. Now you got a whole new expansion coming out. Do you do you have like kind of a plan going forward where it's like, well, okay, we're going to keep working on this for another five years and then maybe we'll try something new? Well, we'll keep releasing expansions as long as people keep playing them, basically. Um, you know, uh, I personally, every expansion, I would say that we're going to keep going for a long time because every expansion we've released, we've had, um, you know, it, it's, it's definitely worth it monetarily, right? Like we spend X on the expansion and we make much more than that when we release it. So, yeah, I mean, basically, as long as it's worth it, we'll keep doing it. And, um, I mean, we I would love to release an Act 5 one day, you know, I would love to... Um, there's tons more ideas that we have for things to do on Path of Exile, so, you know, as I said, we'll, we'll keep going. Path of Exile, you can just find it right on PC. Um, is it also on Mac? Um, it isn't. Um, one day I hope to fix that. But it does work with Wine, so if you want to use uh, uh, that tool uh, or, or you know, some kind of other, um, you know, emulation or something like that, um, you know, VMware and that kind of stuff, you can, you can do that too. Uh, one more reason to transfer over to PC like you should. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, we, we've always, all of our developers use PCs. It's just kind of been the focus. And um, I suppose, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, like, when we started as well, there was no gaming scene at all on Mac. So, you know, I suppose time to change. But, um, yeah, we're still a dedicated PC developer. And Mac users officially hate me now. So Path of Exile, <laughs> it's free to play. You can go out and just download it right now. The Awakening expansion is also going to be free to play and you know what i'm just i'm looking at it right now and it's a really good looking game it's very attractive uh, i love the, the pyrotechnics the presentation's great and the, uh, the the mechanics are fascinating so you really should give it a try so just go out and play it. it's right there it's right available right now so jonathan rogers 
Thanks for joining me and good luck. Thank you very much. Welcome back. We're about to end our episode. We're going to ride gently into the night. But before we go, Mike, where can we reach you? Uh, you can find me at usgamer.net with the rest of the wonderful crew. You can also find me on Twitter at AutomaticZen. And you can check me out at AutomaticZen.com, which is the blog I never update. And you can find me at the underscore catbot. And, of course, you can find us at all of our social media channels, usgamer.net, um, over on Twitter, over on YouTube, over on Facebook, the works. And, of course, feel free to read and rate and review us over on iTunes. The more visibility, the more people that we can spread the gospel of our Dark Lord RPGs, the blood god, to the masses. In any case... Thanks, Mike, for joining me and talking to me about quite a wide variety of things, actually. You are welcome. I'm always pleased to be here. And thank you to the staff of Path of Exile Awakening for agreeing to conduct an interview with me. We will be back next week talking about something, probably Xenoblade Chronicles, but I make no promises because the Dark Lord is mercurial and his tastes are... Have well varied, I should say. And until then, happy adventuring. <laughs> <laughs>